Thank you, guys. Um, it's almost as if I live with the worship leader this morning and was able to put in a request for a song because that, that song leads perfectly into what we're going to talk about this morning, something which um, a lot of us, myself included, think about the second coming of Jesus as something that's abstract when we ought to be thinking about it more as reality. Um, and um, I'd like to pray before we start, and, and I just, I'd like to do it like this. Can you just take two sentences and in your own way ask the Lord to speak through me to you uh, through his word? Just take, take two sentences and go ahead and do that. And then when you're done with that, just pray for yourself. Pray that the Lord will open your ears to the things that he wants you to hear about how to live in light of his second coming. All right. Amen. Amen. I, I, I might have bitten off more than I can chew this morning in terms of how much I really want to cover without, without straining your ears too much. Um, so I, th I think what we're going to do is we're just going to dive in. No, no preamble, no um, poetry. <laughs> you wouldn't want to hear me read poetry anyway. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Martin Luther said, there are two days in my calendar, this day and that day referring to Jesus' return. Paul wrote to Titus, and he said this about the second coming. He said that it is our blessed hope. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, remember that phrase, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this time of waiting before Jesus comes again is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And Paul writes to Titus, and he says that Jesus is training us to learn how to live until he comes back. <clears throat> um, we, not only are we in training, but we have a personal trainer whose name is Jesus. Paul writes, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's Jesus, and he's training us to live a certain way until he comes again. So these days are not passive, sitting around, biding our time, twiddling our thumbs until Jesus comes back. They're active, and we're in training. <clears throat> and since there's been so much written about Jesus' return, I think it might be helpful to eliminate a few things that we don't need to think about regarding his return. Number one, if we're followers of Jesus, and if we're people of his book, we don't need to ask the question, is he coming back? One, this, this statistic floored me. 
one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament talk about Jesus' return. One out of every 10 verses in the epistles, the letters that were written to people and churches, one out of every 10 talk about his return. So his return is not theoretical to us. And if frequency of mention in the New Testament has anything to do with importance, we know that the return of Jesus, there, there are very few things to think about that are more important than his return. Second question we don't need to ask is, when is he coming? Turn in your Bible or your device, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to be jumping all over the place um, this morning, kind of on purpose. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 36 says this. This is Jesus talking. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's a, it's a weird thought to think, isn't it, that there are some things that Jesus doesn't know? But Jesus plainly says only his Father knows the day that he's going to send his Son to come back. If, if Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back, what a futile and empty exercise for you and me to try to predict when that's going to happen. So I think the most beneficial thing for us, the thing that will bring the most glory to the Father, is to ask this question, what now? Since he's going to come back at a time of the Father's choosing, what does that mean for us? How should we live? If I'm, if I'm honest, I just have to admit that in 48 years of following Jesus, the, in 48 years of following him, the thoughts of his return have had little to no impact on how I lived. I was more focused on how in the world am I going to do life? How do I keep my head above water? How do I, how do I struggle well with the things that are going on in my life? And I think I did myself a disservice by not focusing on his coming again, because I think if I did, I would have been less focused on me, and I would have handled my struggles better. I would have kept my head above water better. I would have known better how to live the Christian life if I'd been focused on him and not me. And in these last few years, I have, I have felt like, and now it's more than a feeling, I have sensed that God was just doing this to me. And he was he was calling me aside and, and just saying to me, through everything I read, through everything I heard here at church, um, John, I want you to start to live in light of the fact that my son is coming again, and I want you to start to do life this way. And so this morning, it's going to be really personal for me, but I hope it'll be applicable to you as well as I talk about three areas that I feel like God has said to me, live this way in light of the fact that my son is coming. <clears throat> the first thing is this. Since Jesus is coming back, you and I should be generous people. 
This is a hard one to talk about, especially coming out of COVID. Um, things have not been easy for a lot of us. Um, and I think any discussion of generosity has to start first with a discussion about contentment. Because if you and I are not content with what we have now, there's no way we're going to be generous with what we have. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read 11 and 12. Paul says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he goes on to say what is one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But we use that verse for all kinds of things. And it's probably applicable to all kinds of things in life. But the context of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is contentment, learning contentment. So um, let's pull from that section this, that contentment is something that's learned. Most of us do not grow up learning to be content. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews says this, uh, verse 5, chapter 13, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pull, let's pull from that section this, that the reason we can be content is that the Lord is with us that we're not left to our own devices, that he's with us, we're learning to be content, and he is our helper. The American church needs to learn, I need to learn, to be able to say the phrase, I have enough. I have enough, right now. There are some churches that teach that enough is never enough. There are some churches that teach that your birthright is wealth, and prosperity. And I, I can't think of too many things that are more damaging to the church than teaching us to be entitled in our relationship to God and expect wealth and prosperity. The New Testament says godliness with contentment is great gain. I need to cultivate the discipline of saying I have enough. And so do you. So let's let's say it. So we're going to say it. We're going to say it three times. And the first time we say it, we're going to emphasize the word I. Second time we're going to say it, we're going to emphasize the word have. And the third time we're going to say it, we're going to emphasize the word enough. And you may not feel like saying it, and you may not even feel like it's true. But let's say it together anyway. Okay, ready? Here we go. I have enough. I have enough. Right now, I have enough. And I have enough. By the smiles on your face, I can tell you, I can tell you either feel better or you just think it's a joke. <laughs> Lord, help us to walk the path of contentment because I think contentment leads to generosity. On the day that Jesus comes back, all earthly wealth will be rendered 
worthless, won't it? <clears throat> doesn't mean we don't plan for retirement. It doesn't mean we don't plan for our kids' educations. It doesn't mean we don't plan to try to leave them an inheritance. But when he comes back, we cannot take it with us. Most discussions of generosity in the church talk about being generous with time, treasure, and talent. I don't know where Caneo Church would be without our volunteers who are generous with their time and their talent, their energy. Um, you make it possible, thank you Kim and Lauren, um, you, you make it possible for us to have an impact on Sunday mornings and you make it possible for us to have an impact in the community. And so, and we actually need more volunteers. So if you're, if you're of a mind to want to volunteer and help us out in that way, come talk to me afterwards. But for most of us, being generous with our time and our talent is not as risky as being generous with our treasure, is it? At least it doesn't feel that way. <clears throat> Let's turn to the book of Titus. Titus is the last book. Nope, I lied. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. <clears throat> Malachi says this, and he's speaking prophetically. This is the Lord speaking through Malachi. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house and therefore, or sorry, thereby put me to the test, God says, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He doesn't say bring 10% of your time into the storehouse, does he? He doesn't say volunteer 10% of your talent and play in the worship band. He says, put me the, to the test in this way, bring 10% of your treasure into the storehouse. <clears throat> My personal opinion is that the reason he says bring your treasure in the storehouse is because it's more risky and because money is God's biggest rival. Money is his biggest rival. It's his rival for our attention, for our allegiance and our love. Um, let's turn over, turn over to Matthew real quick, chapter 6. Verse 24 says this, Jesus is talking about laying up treasure in heaven, and he says, nobody can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, because they're rivals. And so it's no wonder, I think, that God says, put me to the test in this, bring your treasure into the storehouse. It's, it's as if he's saying, See if I won't be better to you than your money is. This is the only time in Malachi where God actually encourages us to test him. There are other times when he complains about us human beings putting him to a test. And scripture says, don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. But this is the only time in scripture where he actually encourages us to test him in this way. And if we do, he promises to meet our needs 
and to bless us. So if he can be trusted, to me that says that we can't afford not to give. We, our personal finances depend on it. Our church finances depend on it. But let's, let's zero in on what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God is encouraging us to make a selfish investment. He doesn't, he's not encouraging us to give so that we can be wealthy and prosperous. He's also not offering an insurance policy. He doesn't say that if you, if you do this, if you're generous with your treasure, you're never going to struggle. He doesn't say you're never going to suffer a job loss. He doesn't say that your investments aren't going to tank one year. But this is what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, if you choose to obey me in this, then you will be more blessed financially and in every other way than the person who's afraid to trust me in this. I have never met anyone who wasn't better off in their finances and in their hearts after deciding to be generous with their money. Caneo Church is not dependent on our pocketbooks as much as it is the generosity of heart of our people. To put it another way, the treasure of Caneo Church is in the generosity of our people. But Caneo Church can only move at the speed of our generosity in accomplishing the work of Jesus' kingdom until he comes again. Caneo, I'll say, I'm going to say it again. Caneo Church can only move at the speed of our generosity in accomplishing the work of Jesus and his kingdom until he comes again. What I, what I don't want you to hear is that I'm trying to do some kind of a, you know, TBN, praise-a-thon fundraising thing, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to lay any guilt on anyone. Um, these last couple of years have been really, really difficult. Um, there's been a lot of struggle. Sometimes circumstances are so hard, there is no treasure to give, right? Uh, Annie and I, we, we know all about that, being in the music business. Um, we had one year <clears throat> a while back where we made X number of dollars in one year, and then the next year we made half of that. So it's like we took a 50% pay cut in one year. How, how do you budget for that? You don't. We had, we had one year where we made a certain amount of money and then the next year, and for the next eight years, it was down 30%. So we understand struggle, and we understand that sometimes there is no treasure to give. But here's what I believe. I believe that a, a generous heart will try to find other ways to contribute if there is no treasure to contribute. I think a generous heart will remember that scripture says, the Lord is my helper, and I don't need to fear. I think a generous heart will say, uh, Lord, I'm looking to you to hear your guidance on my financial situation. And I think a generous heart, sooner or later, will find 
that the treasure makes its way back into your house. And that once it does that, it will find a way, because you're generous, to get back into the, the work of the kingdom. Does that make sense? All right. Um, I'd love it if we could just take two minutes and each one of us in our own way have a conversation with the Lord about since coming back, how do you want me to be generous? How do you want me to put you to the test? How do you want me to demonstrate my faith in you by my generosity of heart? Can we just take two minutes, have a conversation just with yourself, maybe your spouse, um, about uh, how to be generous? As you're, uh, as you're bringing that conversation to a close, I say amen to what you asked the Lord to do. <clears throat> Second thing I want to talk about is this, that since Jesus is coming back, you and I should be people that live free of worry. Don't, don't hate me for, for stating the obvious when I say that if Jesus came back 30 seconds ago, none of us would be worried about anything. Wouldn't wouldn't be worried about our health, our finances, wouldn't be angry, we wouldn't be bitter, we wouldn't be depressed. We'd have nothing to worry about because the coming of Jesus puts in the grave worry. <clears throat> but of the, of the three different areas of life that we're going to talk about this morning, this is the one that I struggle with the most. Um, at times, um, I'd, I'll just admit to you that I... I live as a functional atheist when it comes to worry. I, I live sometimes as if God doesn't exist and I don't bring him into the equation when it comes to worry. The definition of a functional atheist is a person that believes that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with me. Does that sound like anybody besides me? No? Good for you. <laughs> So even though I believe in God, my actions don't back that up sometimes when it comes to worry, and I worry. And I act like, um, you know, I act like he doesn't have a remedy for my situation. I think if we went around the room this morning and we asked a particular question, almost every hand might have to be raised. If we asked this question in the last 24 hours, have I excluded God from any of my thoughts, actions, motivations, or decisions, I think most of us would have to raise our hand. And 
Even though we believe he exists, sometimes we don't bring him and his promises into our thinking when it has to do with all kinds of things, but especially in this case, worry. Sometimes, even if I, even if I don't completely exclude him from my thinking, I elevate the size of my problems to the point where it makes God look small, distant, uncaring, not very powerful. And if that's what he's like, then you and I have every reason to worry, don't we? But Jesus says specifically, do not worry. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 20, chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Um, And just notice that the context is money, because we read verse 24 earlier. He's talking about laying up treasure in heaven, and you can't serve God in money. And in that context, he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? There's the functional atheist right there. Me thinking there's something that I can do to actually add an hour, tack an hour onto the end of my life. What are you anxious, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither spin nor toil, and yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here's a little bit of a rebuke. O you of little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious. That's the second time he said that, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Notice notice the do not be anxious in verse 25 and the do not be anxious in verse 31. They're They're like bookends around this little section of what he tells us not to worry about. And the interesting thing is that the tense of the Greek language is different in verse 25 than it is in verse 31. Uh, Verse 25, he's basically saying, you're worrying right now. Stop it. And in verse 31, the tense is different. He's saying, you're not worrying yet. Don't start. They're kind of cool little little bookends around this whole section. So if you're worrying, Jesus says stop. And if you're not worrying, he's saying don't start. Usually it's not very helpful, is it, when you're having a conversation with someone? and they're telling you their troubles and things they're worried about, it's usually not very helpful for you to say, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about that. Just just stop worrying. But that's basically what Jesus is saying. And I think the difference is it's Jesus that's saying it, right? If he was here in person, in bodily form, he would, you know, Rick, don't worry about your back. That would make a difference. Wouldn't make any difference at all if I said it, but if Jesus said it, it'd make a difference, right? 
<clears throat> and Jesus implies in this, in this section where he says, oh, you of little faith, he implies that um, worry has to do with a lack of faith and trust on our part. <clears throat> what, what's the fix for learning to trust someone who you know on paper, right, is trustworthy? We know Jesus on paper is trustworthy. What's the fix for learning to trust someone better that you know is trustworthy? I think, I think the fix is, and it's not a pat answer, it's not an easy answer, is to get to know that person better, right? I think the fix for a life of worry is to learn to know Jesus better, to draw near to him, to pursue him, listen for his voice. And the best way I know how to do that is to find him in here. Because this is all about him from Genesis to Revelation. He's, he's going to be coming back. When he does, everything that we're worrying about now will be put right. Everything that's broken will be fixed. Everything that's uh, wrong will be made right. Everything that's unfair, unjust, will be made right because that's who he is, fair and just. So I have to find a way until he comes back to, to press into the truth that he is trustworthy and I have to find a way to, in knowing him better, trust him with my worries. That, that's, that's our challenge in, in this time that we're living in between what it's like now and when he comes back. And I'd, I'd like us just to take a few minutes, like you did about generosity, have a short conversation with the Lord. Ask him to help you pursue him. Ask him to build your faith. Ask him to help you to draw near and ask him to help you to press into these worries and live as if he's part of the equation. Let's just take a, take a few minutes and do that. Okay, amen. Lord, help us to live like you're in the middle of our life. <clears throat> All right, last, last area of life we're going to look at. Since Jesus is coming back, you and I should live lives that are on assignment. We should be on assignment for him. Some, some assignments are for everybody, right? The, the Lord has given us 
so much to do in here. It's kind of overwhelming at times, right? And, and a lot of these assignments in here from Jesus to you and me, they're for everybody. The series that we just came out of that um, Kirk taught on, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That's an assignment for everyone. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. That's an assignment for everyone. And all day, every day, it's up to us to carry out the assignments he's already given us by the power of the Spirit. But there are times when we're walking through life on assignment that I think the Lord calls us aside to a special task for a special time, um, like a little tap on the shoulder, you sense the Spirit telling you to do something that would take you off assignment onto another assignment. Turn to Acts chapter 8. This is a, <laughs> this is a very unusual and strange passage in Scripture uh, where Philip uh, meets up with the Ethiopian eunuch and some very unusual things happen. Talk about a tap on the shoulder. And we're going to put um, on the screen Acts chapter 8, verse um, 26 through... Is it 26? Through, um, through 40. Uh, I'm, more, I'm not going to take time to read the whole thing. We'll just leave it up there. You can make sure I'm telling the story right. But a um, little background. Philip, in Acts chapter 6, is chosen for leadership in this new church that's just been, just been birthed. And um, <clears throat> Saul comes along. He has, he's not called Saul yet. Uh, he is called Saul. He's going to be called Paul. He comes along, starts terrorizing the church, and so the church scatters. So Philip, along with the other leaders in the church, they scatter, and they go in the surrounding area, and they start preaching about Jesus. That's their assignment. <clears throat> then Philip returns to Jerusalem, and the angel of the Lord just kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to go south, take the road south toward Gaza. So he does so, and then um, he just, just so happens to come alongside this eunuch who's serving the queen of Ethiopia. He just, the eunuch just so happens to be reading a messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah about how Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Then the Holy Spirit taps Philip on the, on the shoulder again and says, go, go join up with this guy. Go make an intro. So Philip goes, joins up with him. And the eunuch says, hey, I'm reading, this, I'm reading this passage from Isaiah. Who is this talking about? Philip says, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> and, and he preaches Jesus to this person. <clears throat> we have to assume that his message is the same message that he's been on assignment, preaching everywhere to repent and be baptized. And the eunuch says, well, hey, there's, there's some water. Baptize me now. What prevents me from being baptized right, right now? So Philip takes him down from the chariot, baptizes him in water. And as soon as they come up out of the water, the Bible says, 
that Philip is teleported over to this other city called Azotus. Can we put that map up on the, on the screen? Okay, without my glasses on, I can barely even see that. Okay, so he's on, he's on the road south of Jerusalem somewhere. That's where the baptizing happens. And he winds up, see where it says Ashdod over there? That's where Azotus is. That's about 60 miles. So he, he baptizes this eunuch. They come up out of the water. He's transported 60 miles away. The Bible says, there's so many strange things in this story. The Bible says that um, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing, as if nothing weird happened. The Bible says that Philip, when he got to Azotus, he just went about his old assignment, preaching Jesus wherever he went. He didn't, he didn't need to, you know, he didn't need to lay down. He didn't need a me day. He just, he acted as if, oh, this is just completely normal. Talk about a tap on the shoulder. It's, a, it's just this amazing otherworldly story. But I think it, it's, a, it's a good place to stop and ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, are we already living on assignment from the one who's coming back? That's question number one. Number two, if the Lord tapped us on the shoulder, would we feel it and would we go do what he asked us to do? Let's just take a few minutes, have another conversation with him, ask him to help us live lives that are on assignment and give us ears to hear when he, when he asks us to go do an assignment. It's not for everybody, it's just for me. It's just take a minute. Amen. Amen. Lord, help us be on assignment from you. All right, let's close. Um, <clears throat> I just want to quickly look at one story that Jesus told. It comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19. Luke says, uh, Luke records that Jesus said this. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. It's interesting how much he gave each one of his servants, this nobleman. A mina is the equivalent of um, three months' wages for a laborer. So Jesus gave them, or the nobleman gave them 30 months' wages in order to carry out their assignment. And in the story, Jesus obviously is the nobleman. The nobleman was going away to establish a kingdom, and then 
He was going to return. And he told his servants, engage in business until I come. Some, some versions of the Bible say, occupy until I come. But the, the real meaning is, be about the business of the one who hired you. <clears throat> if we're talking in a business sense, it basically means grow your boss's business, right? Here's, here's some money, go grow the business. But Jesus is the nobleman, and he's telling a story about his kingdom and then his return. So we're supposed to enlarge the borders of Jesus' kingdom until he comes again. We're supposed to grow our father's business, and our father's business is people. So Jesus is basically telling you and me, take what I've given you and invite people. Tell people that they can be citizens of the kingdom. Enlarge the borders of the kingdom with people. So until he comes, we do that. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Until he comes, we do that using our, our gifts, our talents, our disposition, our character, our energy, our, <clears throat> our generosity. We use it by investing what he's given us. Um, we, we do it by trusting him and living lives that are free of worry so that we can be on assignment and we can be available for special assignments until he comes back on that day. Go for it.